Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 in the New King James Version says this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width was 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So all of those guys, I'm not going to name them all again, verse 3, all of those guys came to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before that image, and a herald cried aloud and said, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn and all those different instruments and symphony with all kinds of music, that everybody fell down and worshiped the gold image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that anyone who hears the sound of the music, all these different instruments, and doesn't fall down and worship the gold image shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. King, they've disrespected you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the gold image that you have set up. Verse 13 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring these three Hebrew men, and they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of all these instruments in symphony with all kinds of music and you fall down and you worship the image that I've made, then good. But if you do not worship, you'll be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? There it is. He has thrown down the gauntlet. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image with you have, which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was not just furious, but he was full of fury. And the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he spoke and commanded that they heat that furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments. And they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because of the king's Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire 
killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then, verse 24 says, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and he spoke, saying to his counselors, Didn't we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they looked and they answered and said to the king, That's true, king. He said, Look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the fourth of the form is like the Son of God. I want to pause right there. And, and make a clarification. This, this, isn't what, this isn't the topic tonight. But Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king. And in the, orig, in, in the original, in most, if you've got a modern translation, something that's not King James or New King James, you'll see that most of them, when they translate that verse 25, that they, they say that the form of the fourth is like a son of the gods, lowercase g. Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan he believed in a pantheon of gods and demigods, and, uh, and in the original language, there's no definite article. There's no the. That's supplied in translation, and in this case, it's not, a, it's not the best translation because Nebuchadnezzar was looking down into that fiery furnace, seeing a fourth figure walking around, and he said, it is like a son of the gods. And um, before I go any further, I'll just set the record straight. The fourth person in the fire is not Jesus. Jesus wasn't born yet. The fourth person in the fire was in all likelihood an angel. We don't believe in a Jesus that existed before the incarnation, before he was conceived and born of Mary that we read about in Matthew and Luke. If you do, then you're a Trinitarian because that's the core of their doctrine. They believe in a pre-incarnate Christ. And so if you think that, if, you've, if you believe, if you still believe that uh, the fourth person in the fire was Jesus, then uh, we need to talk. So we'll, we'll have, we can talk some more. Moving on. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and all of the big shots, all the satraps and the administrators and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God. This is the king who had said, Who is the God who will save you and deliver you out of my hands? And after this episode, Nebuchadnezzar says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not worship nor serve any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. Their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I talked to a couple people uh, before service this evening and made the point 
there's a whole lot going on in Daniel chapter 3. There are a lot of threads to pull on in Daniel chapter 3. And so I just want to tell you from the outset tonight, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be plenty of meat left on the bone. There's going to be plenty that you can dig around and continue your studies of Daniel chapter 3 after we're done. Tonight I want to talk about standing in Babylon. Standing in Babylon. The word worship is used 16 times in the chapter we just read. What do you think the theme of this chapter is? <laughs> worship. It's a good guess. Worship. 16 times in 30 verses the word worship is used. This is a story and a lesson about worship. I, can I tell you tonight that Babylon wants your worship? Babylon wants your worship. And so there's, there's four connections that I want you to see, and then there's four forces that I want to point out that are at work in this story. The first, uh, the first half of what I, I aim to do tonight is going to be uh, Bible study uh, that is just strictly, I want you to see some things that are going on in the text of the Bible. Uh, the first is, uh, I want you to notice that when Nebuchadnezzar makes this statue of gold in Daniel chapter 3, uh, it should not be lost on us that in the previous chapter, he's had a dream of a statue that is made out of different kinds of metals. I pointed out earlier that Daniel's uh, interpretation of the dream identified Nebuchadnezzar as the gold head of that first statue, and that after Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians passed off the scene, there would be another empire that would take their place, and they would be represented by the silver, and then brass, and then iron, and so on and so forth. And that was the interpretation of the dream. It was a good interpretation, and it bears out in history. You can look in history and see that that's the interpretation that came to pass. Well, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has been thinking about the interpretation of this dream, and Nebuchadnezzar has apparently reached the point where he has decided that he no longer wants to see that dream come to pass. Because now he has built a statue of himself that's 90 feet tall, and it's made out of what kind of metal? Gold. Not just the head, the whole statue. This is Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, I don't accept that my empire is ever going to end. History stops right here. I'm the end all and I'm going to end all be all. My kingdom is never going to pass away. My name is never going to be forgotten. My influence is always going to be felt. Everything that I've set up is going to remain forever. My dynasty is going to go on forever. He made the entire statue out of gold. Nebuchadnezzar thought that way because Nebuchadnezzar was being influenced by a spirit, and it's a spirit that still exists in our world today. There was a spirit that Nebuchadnezzar was being influenced by that had influenced some other people earlier in Scripture in the book of Genesis, chapter 11. In chapter 11 of Genesis, they built a tower in Babel. They did it for two reasons. They did it to make a name for themselves, and they did it to elevate their plan and their scheme over the plan of God. Nebuchadnezzar is doing the same thing, and it so happens he's doing it in the same geographical location. He's elevating his name 
his reputation and his plan above the plan of God. And that spirit that he's being influenced by is still in existence today. Spirits never die. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Antichrist. Yes, Brother Dustin, how, how, how could there be a spirit of Antichrist before there, was, before there was even, before Jesus had ever been born? Well, it's a good question. There was a spirit of Antichrist at work even in those earliest chapters of the Bible because Satan was doing everything he possibly could to keep world history from going a certain direction to where there was a Messiah that could come onto the scene. He was trying to squeeze out the plan of God. Satan didn't want Abraham to hear the voice of God and answer the call to leave Ur and go to Canaan. Satan didn't want Jacob to ever answer the call of God that was on his life and become Israel. Satan didn't want Joseph to ever save Egypt and in turn save his own family and keep everybody from starving to death. Because Satan knew if he could thwart the plan of God somehow, some way, whether it was at, on a plane in a place called Babel with a tower, or wh- whether it was with a guy named Nebuchadnezzar that said, I'm going to kill off and exterminate everybody else so that I can stand forever. Whatever the mechanism needed to be, Satan was operating in an anti-Christ way to keep Jesus from ever coming onto the scene. And that spirit is still alive today. We've talked a lot in the last few weeks about how we live in a sort of modern, secular Babylon. And one of the predominant spirits of Babylon is Antichrist. The Apostle John wrote, he said, don't be surprised that Antichrist is already at work. Already at work. I've already mentioned about the fourth man in the fire. And the other thing I want to mention before we go any further is I want to point out the influence of music in this story. Babylon always has a soundtrack. You need to be very careful. This isn't my whole lesson tonight, but you need, I, I'm, I can't get away from saying something about this. You need to be very careful about the kind of content you're allowing into your mind. Because the compromises and the temptations that Babylon wants to send your way is almost always set to music. I'm going to say it again. The influence that Babylon and the Antichrist spirit wants to have in your life is almost always set to music. Just like it is in Daniel chapter 3. You must be careful. You must be careful about what you are allowing into your ears what you are allowing to entertain you, what you're allowing to make you laugh. I know, (laughs) but it's true. It's true. If you're going to stand in Babylon, you're going to have to not enjoy the music of Babylon. It can't be your song. It can't. It can't. I want to talk about four forces that are at work in this story. The first force that I want to make sure we see in this story is pressure. Pressure. There's a tremendous amount of pressure that's going on in this story. You're telling me that they line everybody up 
in a big flat piece of ground. And as far as the eye can see, the music starts. And as far as the eye can see, everybody bows down. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I know a couple things about human nature. And I don't have a window inside of the mind of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But you and me are made out of the same stuff that they are. And so I can paint the picture a little bit about some of the things that must have been going through their mind because I know what goes through our mind. The instruments are blaring, the fire is blazing, and it's time for those three Hebrew young men to make a decision. And based on our shared experiences as human beings, I think I can, I think I can see some of the things that they must have thought and some of the temptations they must have faced being under that kind of pressure. I think the first one would have been the pressure to bow just this once. Just this once. I'm not going to bow every time, but I'll bow just this once. Just this one time. It would be okay if I just did it once. I mean, you tell me, this is, this is the way we rationalize things when we get under pressure. The other, an, another way we rationalize things when we feel that kind of pressure of Babylon and we have to decide whether we're going to stand or bow is we feel the pressure of culture. We'll say to ourselves, you know what? These Babylonians, they don't understand the laws of our God. I don't want to offend their culture. I don't want to be backwards. Nobody likes feeling like they're backwards. I don't want them to think I'm backwards, like I'm some kind of barbarian, like I'm, like I'm unenlightened, like I'm not woke. <laughs> I'm talking about pressure. Pressure. Others, other times, and I bet there were some of these that were in the crowd that day, they adopted the way of handling the pressure that we call the silent protest. They say, I'm going to kneel on the outside, but on the inside, we, we process pressure the same way. These three guys had a decision to make. They could have come up with a whole lot of reasons to justify disobedience to the law of God. I know that because we do. We come up with all kinds of reasons why it's okay to do something just this one time. Or, gosh, I don't want them to think I'm backwards or like I'm some kind of nutcase. Like I'm unenlightened. And the pressure gets intense whenever you know that it's time to stand in Babylon. And with pressure often comes the second force that I want to talk about for a minute. It's pain. There's consequences to nonconformity. You can't think for a second that you're not going to be conformed to this world and that there's not going to be some pain involved in that. These three Hebrew young men are facing something 
that I don't think any of us in the room, if I'm wrong, you can correct me, but I don't think any of us in the room have faced anything like what they faced. Because on that day, when they had to decide whether they were going to stand in Babylon or bow to this image, and really it wasn't an image, it was an agenda. It was an antichrist agenda. They had to decide what they were going to do. And in the middle of all that, they faced imminent physical threat to their own lives. The flames were hot. They'd heard the announcement. And they had to know that loss of life was incoming. And when all of our human answers, it's pain. They, they were facing pain. And when all of our human answers fail, we, you may not have a burning, fiery furnace as the thing that's, that's bringing pain into your life. But when disease is in the picture, or financial pressure, or abuse, or insults, when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, when you're facing those circumstances, the music is blurring and the fire is blazing, that's when Satan likes to show up. That's when the adversary likes to show up. And you know what he asks? You know what he asks? He asks, does, does God really love you? Because here you are. How'd you get in Babylon in the first place? And now, you're faced with a seemingly impossible decision because if you do the right thing, you're going to be punished, in their case, by death. And the adversary will show up right at that moment of pain. And he'll drop a question like that. Does God really love you? And the number one lie that he will tell you in that moment is that God does not love you. And what you need to do whenever you're facing the pressure of Babylon. Is this okay tonight? When you're facing the pressure of Babylon and you come to that pain point where it's fixing to cost you something, you need to, when you hear Satan start dropping those kind of hints around you, you need to say, Satan, you need to come with me. And then you need to take him to Calvary. And Satan, you look at this cross and you tell me that Jesus doesn't love me. If there's ever been an hour where we need to stay acquainted with the cross, it's this hour. Because brothers and sisters, as sure as we are living in a modern day secular Babylon society, you better believe that with the pressure of that is going to come the pain. And when the pain comes, that's when the adversary is going to show up at your doorstep and try to make you question everything you've ever known. And at that moment, you better know your way to the cross. Because going back to the cross and reminding yourself of the blood that Jesus shed for you is the only thing that's going to let you gather yourself up and stand in Babylon when everybody else is bowing down to an antichrist agenda. You need to be able to say beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus does love me. Jesus is working for my good. He's working for my good. 
in the middle of the pain, if it's disease, if it's finances, if it's abuse, if it's insults, if it's what the valley of the shadow of death, if it is literally death knocking on my door, I know that he loves me and I know that he's working things out for my good even though I don't understand it. I know I can trust him. I'm going to have faith because he loves me. And I'm not going to let any voice of the adversary speak otherwise into my life. When your focus remains on the cross, your faith will not waver through the troubles and the challenges that come in those moments when our human answers fail. Because this is one of those moments. There were no human answers for what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing and what they were fixing to go through if God didn't intervene. There were no human answers available. There was no hotline. There was no one who was going to swing in and save them. There was no injunction that was coming from the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. It was about to get very real, very fast. They had to know beyond the shadow of a doubt, in the middle of all of that pain, if they were going to stand when everybody else was bowing, they had to know that there was a God who loved them and God had a plan. That's why in the middle of that pressure, in the middle of that pain, hear me, I've said it a lot in the past couple of months, you need to be anchored to what you know and not what you feel. Let me talk about that for a minute. That's, the, that's another one of the forces that I want to talk about. I've talked about the pressure and I've talked about the pain. I need to talk about the principle for a minute. There's some principles in God's word that you need to be acquainted with for yourself. I'm talking about things you know, not, think, not the goosebumps that you feel. I'm talking about things you know. Because the, they weren't feeling any goosebumps that day. They were feeling, they were, start, they were starting to get singed a little bit. They were starting to feel the heat rise up out of that burning fiery furnace. There wasn't no, nothing special or warm or fuzzy about it. They weren't playing their song that day, I can promise you that. It wasn't their song. They had to rely strictly on what they knew. And those three men, that day, when everybody else was bowing, they stood in Babylon, and you know what they stood on? They stood on the word of God can't talk about faith and they had tremendous faith and I want to talk about that in a minute but we can't talk about their faith until we talk about their principles because if they don't have anything to stand on they don't have any why would they need to exercise their faith you can't get the cart before the horse on this one they were standing when everybody else was bowing in Babylon they were standing on the word of God and here's the part of God's word that they were standing on when they decided, Brother Walker, not to bow. Exodus chapter 20, just in case you're wondering, why are these guys being, why are they, why are they being so much trouble? Why, why are they acting out like this? Exodus chapter 20 is where God delivers the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments say this in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. 
That's, that was what they were standing on. There was tremendous, tremendous pressure to conform and to be uh, among those who bowed down instead of stood. But they were at a place where they had to rely on what they knew. And they knew for a fact, Brother Burke, that they were not permitted per the commandment of God. I am not allowed to create one of these carved images. And I'm not allowed to bow down and worship one of these carved images. And Babylon's goal. Here's, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This was just a history lesson for a second. Babylon was one of those empires that was very religiously tolerant. You could keep all of your own belief systems in Babylon. They didn't want to convert you uh, and make you drop all of your different belief systems. They were still allowed to be Jews. They were still allowed to uh, do a lot of Jewish things. And so it was with a lot of the other people groups that they, they conquered. Uh, they didn't make them assimilate into one, one culture. They let them kind of keep doing some of their own things. But they were going to make them bow down to this image. And this is what Babylon does. Babylon has a goal, and Babylon's goal is your God in second place. You can still have your God, but your God has to be in second place. Your God cannot serve, and this is what they'll say, serve whatever God you'd like, but just put it in second place. You have to say, no, I'm going to stand. They'll say, listen, you can do this and that. You have to say, no, I'm going to stand. They'll say, come on, just see what it feels like to bow. The music's going. We're going to a big party afterwards. Just see what it feels like to be a part of this, to bow. You have to say, no, mm -mm. I'm going to stand. And our culture places the same pressure on you to put God in second place. And you need to have established some principles from the word of God. You need to do like what I taught about two weeks ago from Daniel chapter 1. They had to settle some things. They had to settle some things. If you don't have some things settled, then the last force that I'm going to talk about, faith, never comes into the picture. Never comes into the picture if you don't have some things settled. You'll say, you know, I'll have the faith to stand when it comes. When the day comes and the Antichrist spirit is coming and everything's coming to a head and there's this big mega confrontational moment, I'll have the faith to stand in that moment. No, you won't. No, you won't. Not if you don't have some principles. Not if you, can't have, if you don't have some principles that you've settled that you know faith won't be a factor. You'll have already bowed down. You know the only reason their faith had to become a factor is because they didn't bow down and suddenly they were standing in front of a fiery furnace. That's when their faith entered the picture. And that's the fourth force, the final force that I want to talk about tonight is your faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not presume to predict what would happen to them they just had faith that God would do the right thing. Whether, you can read it. I think it's verse 17 and 18 in Daniel chapter 3. Whether they were 
whether they were miraculously delivered out of the fire or whether they were left to burn. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not going to compromise their commitment to God. Live or die, they were going to be faithful to the word of God. They were going to stand in the middle of Babylon. They were going to have faith in God. There was a young man I read a story about once. His name was Brian Sternberg. And he was a young man, and he was a nationally acclaimed track and field star. And uh, has anybody ever, I haven't, has anyone ever pole vaulted? Any pole vaulters? Okay, okay here we go. They're alarming. Yeah, I'm perfect. Yeah, exactly, see? That's about where I stand on it. Brian Sternberg was a pole vaulter. He was a, a, a big star. He was just doing great. And during the season that was happening in 1963, uh, he was 19 years old. He was having unbelievable success. He was making headlines. He was winning everything. He was just on a roll. And he was training because the U.S. team that he was a part of was going to go on tour in Russia. And so he was training. He was in some intense training. And he was training on a trampoline. I don't know anything about pole vaulting. I don't know what a trampoline has to do with it. I guess there's jumping involved. I, I don't know. But what I do know is Brian Sternberg is training on this trampoline, and he falls, and he breaks his neck. Awful. Awful. He lands on his neck, and uh, he hears the crack, and before he knows it, he can't feel any of his arms or legs. He can't feel any of it. So he goes from being an internationally known pole vaulter at the age of 19 to in an instant, uh, being a quadriplegic. He can't move his arms or his legs. And um, he was a Christian. And as you can imagine, uh, the article that I read, it really put his faith to the test, as you, could, you can imagine. He faced a crisis that threatened to leave him as a quadriplegic for the rest of his life and uh, confined to a wheelchair. And he had faith that God could and would heal him of his paralysis. But years later, uh, up until the day of his death, he remained paralyzed. And many have asked, and we would ask ourselves, because this is the stuff of life, did his faith fail? Uh, did he not have enough faith? Did God make a mistake? Did God forsake this young man? And the story goes that Less than a year after his accident, his tragic accident, uh, there was a, a magazine that asked him to uh, write a column. And so they had someone come in, and, and he uh, dictated it to them and, and wrote a column in this, in this magazine. And he ended it with these powerful words. He said, um, having faith is a necessary step toward one of two things. Either God is going to heal me, or I'm going to have peace of mind about this. And those were those, and that was his view. That was his view of faith. That was that was his commentary on the entire situation, and the role of faith. He said, "Faith is necessary, but I have to accept that either he's going to heal me, or he's not. And if he doesn't, he's going to give me peace about it." Well, some ten years later, after the accident, uh, some people, everyone around him had had talked and and had convinced him that since God loved him, God wanted him to walk again. God 
God was going to heal him and that he shouldn't accept any answer except that, uh, that he should stand up and walk away from his wheelchair. And it changed the way that this young man thought about faith because now Brian's faith only allowed for one possible outcome, that God was going to heal him, and if God didn't heal him, that God didn't exist, that God didn't love him. You can see how dangerous that view of faith is, but you can see how easy it is to fall into that because it's driven almost by a sense of hope, isn't it? It's driven by optimism. It's driven by this this desire to believe God for the absolute most that God could do in somebody's life. But when you see the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not the type of faith that you see in action. The type of faith that you see in action in Daniel chapter 3 is the type of faith that says, I'm going to stand in Babylon. I'm going to do what's right. And I have faith that God is going to deliver me out of the hand of the king. And if that means that I go into this burning, fiery furnace and survive miraculously, then so be it to God be the glory. But if not, those are the words, brothers and sisters, but if not, we have to have a recovery of what those words mean to us today. Because if we have a faith Here's, here's what the problem is. I don't mean to get out there, but let me see if I can say it in a way that helped me earlier this week. <laughs> the young man in the story stopped having faith in God and started having faith in faith. The three Hebrew young men in the story, they had faith in God. God was the object of their faith. And if God decided that they should live, then praise God. And if God decided that that was their last day on the face of the earth, then praise God. Because God was in control. They were standing in the middle of Babylon. They had their principles of God's word to stand on. They were going to do the right thing, come what may. And God was going to receive the glory for it one way or another. That's true faith. That's true faith. Not bargaining with God, not putting conditions on God, not looking for loopholes, but completely trusting God. That's true faith. Now, I know this is a side of faith and this is a side of living for God that doesn't get a lot of airtime because it doesn't feel super optimistic and it doesn't feel super full of hope but hear me it is the realistic view that the bible gives us about what it sometimes means to live for god especially in babylon let me take you to hebrews chapter 11 to prove to prove my point hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter full of people of faith and there's person after person after person after person after person that's listed as people of faith. Not perfect people, but people of faith. And then towards the end of the chapter, there's a couple paragraphs that stand out to me that paint the picture of a reality that sometimes we aren't accustomed to. I started off this teaching series by making the observation that these are skills and ways of thinking that we don't really know anything about. 
Because since our ancestors, since the pilgrims landed on this continent, we've been, the Christians have been in the majority. We really don't have the skill set to navigate. We don't have the frame of mind to navigate, but if not, faith. But hear me, we're going to have to develop some of it in the days to come. Because we're living in a world that's different than the way it used to be, and we're never going back to the way it used to be. And so we need a passage like I'm fixing to read from Hebrews 11 to shape our thinking. Here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Woo! Ha! But then right in the middle of that verse, there's a turn. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Principles and faith in the face of pressures and pain confounds the enemy. Hear me tonight. When your principles and your faith come together, there is no pain and there is no pressure that you cannot overcome. But I must, if I, I would be disingenuous if I didn't, I must present two outcomes today and not just one. Sometimes you have to go through the trial and you come out the other side. And sometimes the trial is the end. And you receive your eternal reward. I've read this chapter, Daniel chapter 3, many times throughout the course of my life and even just in the past few weeks. And every time I come to the same response because I, I want to have that kind of faith. Don't you? I see, these, I see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and I don't elevate them to a place where I'm worshiping them. But I see them and I, there's something about them that I aspire to. And I think of those places in Scripture where the apostles say to the Lord, if we all stand, the apostles say to the Lord, Jesus would say something difficult, and they'd say, Lord, increase our faith. There was a man once that had a daughter who was very ill. And Jesus began to tell him, some things and the man cried out with tears and he said Lord I believe help my unbelief and that's where I am at right now 
I'm at the place where I, 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 we're in Babylon. And I'm crying out to God and saying, God, increase my faith. I want to live with confidence to the very end. God, I want to have that kind of faith that says, God, I trust you no matter what is on the other side of that door. Lord, I trust you to deliver me and see me through the trial. But if not, if this is the end, then blessed be the name of the Lord. I know he will never leave me or forsake me. God, give me faith. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Would somebody lift up their hands in the house of the Lord right now and just begin to make that your prayer? Could you just step out in faith right now and find a place around these altars and around the front of this building and say, God, I want to live for you no matter what. Lord, no matter what the outcome is. Lord, no matter if it's good or bad. No matter if it's more pain.